Here's uh, what I propose in the sermon, uh, the questions that I, I thought about as I was writing it. What does it mean to seek the things that are above? What are these things that are above? How do we express those things in our day-to-day -day living? What is the relationship between the things that are above and the things that are, well, below? for want of a better term, and what kind of a relationship should we have with our possessions? So those are the issues that are in uh, the reading from Colossians and in the gospel story about the uh, foolish farmer, whatever the, the right term of, of the parable is. So I thought I'd preach on, on both of them and talk about it. When I was a kid, my grandmother... When I was a little boy, my brother and I would often go over there and stay with them on Saturdays. And uh, I would tell my grandmother something about school or about some boy or some teacher or some problem that was going on. And my grandmother would say to me, dear, you must rise above it. <laughs> so when you're nine, and somebody says, you must rise above it. How do you think about it, you know? It sort of meant like, I couldn't tell. To transcend it. You know, transcend is a word that we use to, to uh, really means that instead of one, thing, one, one place, it's everywhere. You know, that's what transcend means. So you, you sort of are trying to say something about uh, what is above and overall. So a lot of the biblical text is full of stuff about above and below and so forth. And we don't think that way spatially anymore, not, as, uh, not in, in terms of uh, where God is and, and all that kind of thing. But Paul is, is making a point in Colossians, in this part of Colossians, and, and here's what it is. Now that you've been baptized, you now uh, need to focus on the things that are above, meaning the higher ways of looking at the way you relate to other people. That to rise above is not really the thing that's most important. It's to figure out what it is you need to be, do to be faithful to the baptismal covenant. And through this particular section in Colossians, he talks about clothing yourself which is an image of what a person in his day and age would be when they were baptized. They'd wear special clothing, an alb, and they'd be baptized. So you're putting on uh, a new self, and this new self is the way that uh, you seek to be faithful. So Paul's affirmation of what it means to be in Christ in this reading, I'm sorry to say, to me seems somewhat negative because he's telling us again what to avoid. Ralph Qualls told me that yet again he was assigned to read from Colossians where we've got fornication in it. So when Mary Morrison was here, he complained about the same thing, and she said, but you read them so well. He's specializing. He's specializing. <laughs> you know? I've said this to you before. Paul is talking about things that are completely within the thought world of the people that he's writing to. 
And so when he's talking about things to avoid, this list is not a Christian list that he is listening to. It's a list of behaviors to be avoided that is part of the uh, conventional wisdom of the Hellenistic <coughs> world, the Greek-influenced world that says, here's what you shouldn't do, and here's what you ought to do. And Christian people have taken these things over and have used them because you've heard me say this before. Being a good Christian has a lot to do with being a decent human being. In fact, they may not be distinguishable in absolute terms. So it isn't that you have to like become another person when you are clothed with the, the uh, sacrament of baptism. It means you're living fully into your humanity and responding to God's invitation to follow the Savior on the way so that you see your life as a process of coming to a, a clearer uh, understanding of God's will and purpose for you. So it's how you're moving along in this pilgrimage. I'm sorry that this uh, reading did not end later in the chapter and maybe go, uh, instead of to, to verse 11, maybe go to verse 17, because here's what it says. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. So what are the things that are from above? Well, how about compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance? Tools you can use. These are things people can do. Sometimes it's not easy. It's easy to, to, to say them, but it's hard to do them. And Paul elsewhere said, you know, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. So it's a conundrum, isn't it? How is it that we, we do this? And in Colossians, Paul is struggling with this community who is coming into some maybe maturity as a, as a Christian community. Paul did not found this community. I read an interesting thing. This is a digression, but remember I've told you that um, most biblical scholars today would say that of the 13 letters that Paul wrote uh, are attributed to him in the New Testament, the undoubted Pauline letters are seven in number. And one of the disputed letters is Colossians. I did read a wonderful <coughs> commentary this week uh, about why you could make the case for this being written by Paul and uh, that it's possible for one person to speak in more than one voice and to use uh, a, a vocabulary and a language that may not be characteristic of them and to do it for apologetic purposes, which is a way of saying I'm in a situation here when I write to the Colossian Christians and I want to speak to them uh, about a couple of things that uh, are concerning them and the vocabulary that I'm going to use with them isn't the same one I used when I wrote Romans, for example, or First and Second Corinthians. 
So it's entirely possible that that might be the case. If you say that Paul didn't write Colossians, then that says to you, Christian people in pastoral terms after Paul were beginning to think, how do we remain faithful to Paul's uh, principles and also address the pastoral situation on the ground in our own time? What are the circumstances that we're going through here? And I suspect that there has been some internal difficulty in that community with regard to how to get along with one another. And some may have thought that because all has been accomplished in Christ, I can now live according to my own lights, which was one of the views that some of the people in these communities had. I get to do what I want to do. It's all been done now for me. I can just kick out the jams and enjoy myself. So Paul is trying to bring some uh, regulation to this, to this thinking and this reflection. So when you think about the things that are above, think of the affirmative ones that come later in the chapter about things that you can do as a way to understand that. The gospel for today is a story that begins with uh, a brief introduction and then it tells us about a man who's very prosperous and he's got a lot of stuff. And he makes a decision to say, well, I'm going to tear down all of the storage units that I have for this stuff and I'm going to build a humongous storage, a barn for this stuff that will then also have more room for the accumulation of more stuff then I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry. When I was a little boy, there was a, uh, a cartoon in the Saturday Evening Post, which is a magazine long since gone. And a man was standing uh, in the backyard, this is in the late 1950s, and he had a 40-foot swimming pool and a colonial, American colonial house. They were very popular, you know, with the green shutters, that sort of architectural style. And he had his arm around his wife, and he was looking back at the house, and he said, well, dear, now I think we can begin to have the family. <laughs> right? We've got it all in place now, and then we can go ahead and do what it is uh, that we're going to do. So this guy seems to be uh, someone like this. Let me say before I get to the rest of this, there is absolutely no indication in this parable that the person that is being described received his wealth and prosperity through devious or crooked means. He received his prosperity and his success through his own hard work, through his own labor, and there's no indication that anybody was sort of left in the dust as the result of his efforts. So we're not talking about somebody who has operated in a corrupt fashion. But all of a sudden he makes this decision and God comes to him and says, you fool, today your soul is uh, required of you. Now, you know, the jig is up. Right? Now what do you do? Now if this seems to be an improbable story, 
Those of us in the helping professions, I think a lot of pastors have certainly in their ministry had people come to them. In their own lives, they may have had this happen to themselves, and that is themes, thing to be go things seem to be going along fine, and then bang, you're hit right between the eyes, out of the blue, and you're knocked off your pins. And you were focused on something entirely differently, and you thought you were moving from strength to strength, and now here you are, and all of these resources that you have labored to accumulate, all of this social standing that you have labored to, accumu uh, to accumulate has done nothing for you. You're thrown back on your own resources. And so Jesus is speaking about this. First, in the in introduction, I forgot to mention, he's in a crowd getting jostled around, and some guy comes up to him and, and asks him to uh, tell his brother to give him a share of his brother, his inheritance. Remember in the ancient Near East, uh, in Western Europe, in the West, we had this for a long time in some places, maybe the, the oldest son inherits. Everybody else is, takes potluck or doesn't get anything, right? So it's the oldest son who receives it. He's got his inheritance now, and the younger brother wants a share. So Jesus said, you know, um, it's not my business to get into this. Who appointed me the arbiter uh, of this dispute? He's a smart guy, the Savior is, because I don't want to get into one of those family disputes. After a while, it gets to be pretty rough, doesn't it? And sometimes it can get down to the minutia of, uh, I, I wanted that grand piano, and in fact, Mother said I could have it. <laughs> Where have, have we been through that before? You know? <clears throat> no, she said it was the jade, the jade necklace that, that it was the, that was the one. I've actually had people in my office who want to talk to me about those kinds of arguments, right? That go on and on and on. <laughs> As Jim Umberfield used to say, my family's general manager from Texas, on and on and on, <laughs> they went. So he's talking about, the, about covetousness, and he says some things in there that we confuse, both in the first part and in the second part, the difference between what you have and who you are. And I believe in this culture that is a completely confused thing, you know? Having money, it's like in a marriage. Nowadays, the issue isn't what, what, it, what are people going to do with their money. It has to do with what your goals are. If you're going to marry somebody who wants to live in Belvedere and have two Mercedes-Benz automobiles and go to Italy three times a year, and you'd rather live in an apartment in San Francisco and go to Deutsch's for brunch and read the Sunday New York Times, you've got a completely different goal problem, don't you? Right? How are you going to use these resources? You know, what is it that you're going to do? So that is also a confusion between who you are and what you have. Now, what you have in this culture often defines who you are in the sense that how, of how people think about you. And this is what in Luke's gospel Jesus is getting at today. In Luke's Gospel, we have more stories about uh, the use of material possessions, 
about issues of, of justice and equality in economic life and how we're to sort this out in relational terms. What is right relationship to the things that we have? I suspect Jew, uh, uh, Luke being a Gentile, and maybe his gospel emerges out of a Gentile Christian community, they're not freighted uh, both in the positive and negative way with uh, the, the, the Jewish ethics about how to use resources because the Jews had, had a lot to say about these matters. But if they're now, you know, in, an, in a Gentile world where accumulation is very important and somehow as the result of their conversion they're beginning to think thoughts about right relationship with their possessions, these kinds of stories would resonate with them, it seems to me. Now, the other piece to this is, is this. I've heard a lot of preachers, I've even done this myself in the past, speak about the necessity for renunciation in some form, for getting rid of your stuff, for uh, having too much stuff, figuring out what are we going to do with all this stuff. Well, I've come to my senses, I'm an Episcopalian, and I think there may be a middle way on this. <laughs> Let me tell you what bothers me about this. Uh, how much of an acute phase is any culture willing to undergo in order to have the kind of material adjustment necessary to truly simplify the way people live? How much acute discomfort are you willing to go through in order to, for that to be so, to give your stuff away? I think we can all agree that all of us have probably too much stuff. And some of us have actually made some steps to get rid of some of the stuff. But the fact of the matter is, this country runs on stuff. <laughs> Many of you are engaged in businesses where you're making stuff for people to buy. And your livelihood is now a function of the success of being able to sell that stuff. So if you can't sell that stuff, what are you going to do? Right? And do we say as a people in terms of public policy, because of our um, uh, uh, religious commitments, that we're now going to create a society where we eliminate all the stuff? You know, back to goat cheese and B.O.? As my pastoral theology professor Urban Holmes said once, is that where we're headed again? Right? Well, you know, probably not. So I think that if you read Luke's gospel carefully, you will see that Luke, that Jesus in Luke's gospel is at pains to focus people's attention on right relationship. And you and I always can do better with regard to the relationship we have with our stuff. We can always do better about how we think of other people who have less stuff or a lot more stuff than we do and we're jealous of. We can do something about our internal emotional, spiritual, and mental states with regard to uh, a false self-concept of that we're really somebody because we have a lot of stuff, you know? And maybe as time goes on, we can begin to say, yeah, we could do without all this stuff, or we could do with less of it. 
The other thing, of course, is get you, this started in the 1950s. If you want to buy a washing machine, you buy a washing machine and you hope you're going to have it for 25 or 30 years. Not anymore. Maybe 10 years, you've got to buy a new machine because the outfit that makes the washing machines needs to sell new ones, right? Planned obsolescence, they used to call that. So I'm hammering this home because we need to have a serious conversation about this kind of thing. And you know, it's my opinion that in many of these important ethical areas, there is simply no public uh, mechanism by which people can get together and have real conversations about this kind of thing that has a move towards, there's a whole lot of think tanks and a whole lot of other kinds of things. But there's some stuff that we need to be able to do about this kind of thing. This parable uh, is important in terms of how we have uh, an understanding of right relationship. Now, Paul's letter relates to this because he's speaking about true riches. And Jesus, at the end of today's gospel, is speaking about what it means to be uh, rich toward God and how we understand that. So I guess the lesson this week would be, uh, from Paul's letter, think about the affirmative side of the part we didn't read, which is, I'm, hope, I'm just hoping that most of you are avoiding fornication. So we don't need to, we don't need to focus too much on fornication anymore. But do you know what fornication is in the old reckoning? Sometimes this terminology is used by people they don't know what in the world it means. Now there's adultery, we all know what that is. Adultery means having sexual relations if you're married with a married person or if you're not with a married person, that's adultery. Fornication is having sexual relations with somebody uh, and you're not married and they're not married. That was the old, remember the old rules where you weren't supposed to until you got married, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, about 10 years ago, I was talking to a couple that wanted to get married, and they sat down, and, and, and you know, 85% or 90% of the people that come to be married in any church now are already living together. So the, 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 one of them said to me, yes, we're living in sin. And I said, what is living in sin? What does that mean? And they said, well, you know, I don't know. I just know that we're living in sin because somebody told me. <laughs> Now that's about what I said about Alistair McIntyre a couple of weeks ago, isn't it? And King Kamehameha and the taboo rules. He, they know nothing about the tradition of why that's so. They just know that it's there. And so they make the comment. But they have no useful information about the tradition out of which that particular norm came. So that's true with a lot of things, isn't it? I think it's probably true with how we use our stuff in this day and age as well. 
So this week, think about compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance as some of the things that we can practice along, by the way, with fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are all affirmative ways to focus on the things that are above. And be on your guard, as the Savior said at the end, for all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Amen.